forerunner. That uh, John the Baptist was our forerunner, and we're actually Jesus's. Uh, John the Baptist was Jesus's forerunner in um, his first coming, and we're Jesus's forerunner in his second coming. So, Joe B., as you go back there to check that, uh, do me a favor and get me the trackpad. Get me the trackpad, por favor. Everybody who wants to share it, go ahead and go to um, the MPI uh, cohort. We should be uh, live now. The MPI SUM cohort. We're going to be talking about us preparing the way as John the Baptist prepared the way for his first coming. Looks like it's coming in pretty good. And I'll just get a confirmation on you on the sound. Thank you, sir. Join me for chapel. It is on the public SUM page, not the private group. Because it's up there right now, I can see it. I'll just have him confirm that we're getting the sound through it. I can probably hear it right now with a little echo. Yep, we're getting it. Okay. I'm going to actually turn up the sound a little bit because it still seems like I'm coming in a little bit low. So open up your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, I believe, verse 6. What are you doing back here? Oh, I just wanted you to check it. You can check it right there from your phone. All right, John chapter 1, I believe, starting in verse 6, will give us the um, context. Joby, I just need you to put your headset on and check it for me, please. myself right here as well. Let's make sure it's coming through okay. Let's hear it. Not too bad of a lag today. Okay, and then Joe B, actually raise up the camera on me a little bit. Thank you. Okay, John chapter 1. Let's look at, I believe, verse 6, and I am correct. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Everybody say forerunner. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus. He came before Jesus and told everyone that Jesus was coming. He fulfilled the prophecy of Jesus, or rather he filled the prophecy of the coming of Elijah before Jesus would come. You can see more about John the Baptist in the Synoptic Gospels. So let's go to Mark, which is a good place to start with John the Baptist, because Mark pretty much starts his um, gospel with John the Baptist. And so even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in all the stories they tell about Jesus, Mark is different because he doesn't start with the genealogy of Jesus. So he does skip that. That's the one major thing he skips, and he goes right into John the Baptist and Jesus' coming. But let's look to Mark chapter 1 to learn more about John the Baptist and then see some applications for us. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you. Everybody say, I will send my messenger ahead of you. Now look at this next part. Who will prepare your way? Somebody say, prepare your way. Amen. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. What an honor 
for John the Baptist to be this messenger, to be this one sent ahead to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something unique about Mark here because a lot of times people say things like, you know, the Gospels other than John don't really have a high Christology of Jesus. They present Jesus more as a prophet, not as the God-man. And so what we see here is that there is a high view, a high view of who Jesus is, even in the Gospel of Mark, because he starts off right here calling Jesus the Son of God, the Son of God. The Son of God is a title relating to Jesus' divinity. The Son is equal to the Father. Does everybody understand that? Now, even if you took the understanding of saying that Jesus is a created being, and that's what makes him the Son, he could not be a mere man, but that would once again contradict uh, theism by believing in polytheism, another God that's created. So no matter which way you look at this, whether you're a Jehovah Witness trying to contradict uh, the Bible or whether you're a Muslim trying to say that, you know, really only the Gospel of John uh, really uh, teaches Jesus as God. All the other Gospels really just have him to be uh, a man, a prophet, and those kinds of things. But I want to tell you that that's not true. The moment John, uh, Mark rather starts his Gospel, he starts by saying, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And the Son of God is a term of Jesus' deity. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And now the author actually goes so far to tell us what he wore and what he ate. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. How many would like to do that? Wear camel's hair and have a belt around you made of leather with, uh, you know, the diet of locusts and wild honey. You want to talk about going organic. You want to talk about going natural. There you go. Come on. After this was, oh, excuse me, and this was his mass message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That's kind of rhyming right there, isn't it? The, uh, this was, it says here, um, the one who comes after me is more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Come on, more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. A little spoken word there. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's keep going. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth. Getting a little runaway there. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw, talking about John the Baptist, saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love and you and with you I am well pleased. The Trinity, right there in the first chapter of Mark. You cannot get away from the deity of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And there's also many other places in the other synoptic Gospels that teach the deity of Jesus as well. But I just love to point that out because... Um for those who take a really strong position on the historicity of Mark and its role in the Synoptic Gospels, actually say Mark is the very first one and all of the rest of them copied after them. This is kind of more like liberal theology. And John just kind of came out of nowhere and probably wasn't even written by the uh, disciple of John. Well, that's kind of been debunked in, in so many ways as well. It's because our oldest manuscripts that we found that, that are actually dated to be the closest time to Jesus are of the Gospel of John. So John is very early along with all these other Gospels. But then the other thing is that you see is that Mark has a very high Christology. Within the first verse, he calls him the Son of God. Within a few moments, John the Baptist is saying, I can't even stoop down and tie or untie his sandals. I mean, treating him as he's divine. And then here you see the baptismal, uh, uh, the baptism of Jesus, which is representing our baptismal formula, which is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all equal because they are one. Isn't that amazing? A voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At 
Once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with all the wild angels and uh, wild animals, and that all the wild angels. He wasn't hanging out with them demons. Uh, he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Well, isn't that amazing uh, to see here that he is uh, the one sent ahead of Jesus. He is the one that has come ahead of him in his first coming, as it says here in Mark, to prepare the way, to be the messenger of the Lord, to say, make straight paths for him. And then he goes out and he preaches the gospel, uh, or rather the message of repentance. And then he baptizes those who accept that message. And he even had, excuse me, the honor to baptize Jesus. Now, in another place, we see that there was a prophecy about Elijah coming first, and this is from uh, Malachi. And they asked Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, wasn't Elijah supposed to come first? And then Jesus tells them, Elijah has already come. And let's turn to that passage as well. Let's go first to Malachi. Malachi chapter 5, verse 6. Malachi chapter 5, verse 6. And we will see that, um, that this is where the prophecy comes from. Oh, excuse me. Uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Thank you. I've got a lot of things in front of me that sometimes make it hard for me to stay focused because... I'm trying to do like three things right now in this new way of having the uh, Bible follow along with me on the live webcast. Okay, Malachi chapter five, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to come before that grateful and dreadful day of the Lord, uh, be, to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, what I love about uh, Bibles like this, as you can see here, the reference uh, at the end of the word Elijah to where this is found now in the gospel. Now, let's go to that place in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus, uh, well, let's go to this other one. There's two places where Jesus references this, but let's go to the other one, which is Matthew chapter um, 16, where it references... Um, John, they ask, well, I thought, John, I thought Elijah was supposed to come. And then Jesus tells them, he has come, but y'all haven't been cool with him. You have not been doing the right thing. Okay? Matthew chapter 16, verse 14. And if I do have time, I'll go back to that other passage in Matthew, which is an amazing one. Okay. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Um, he came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, uh, John, uh, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And then he said, uh, who do you say I am? And, and Jesus, uh, Simon Peter said, well, we believe you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then he said uh, all these wonderful things to him. Um, Oh, excuse me, this is not the one that I'm looking for. Why did they send me to this one? This should not be it. Um, let me see here if they put the reference there for me. They don't put the naughty, naughty thing. Uh, let me just put it right here. Uh, Matthew 17. I thought that was going to help me save some time by having that resource right there, but it's Matthew 17 where they ask the question, I thought that... Um, Elisha was supposed to come, and then they say, uh, he says, well, Elijah, excuse me, they say, hasn't, isn't Elijah supposed to come before the coming of the Lord? And then, they, and, and then he says, yeah, Elijah has come. Where am I at, Matthew? Okay, I am not in this section. Matthew chapter 17, verse 10. Matthew chapter 17, verse 10. Dude, I am in the wrong place. There we go. Why am I not? I got to click on it? Okay. Oh, because I have the wrong. Can I get the trackpad now, good sir? Yeah. 
Oh, no, 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 I can do it. Sorry, I just have to do this. There we go, Matthew chapter 17, verse 10. This is literally like trying to juggle like five things. It's making it easier for the webcast, but harder for me here. The disciples asked them, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things but I tell you Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but have done to him everything they wished in the same way the son of man is going to suffer at their hands then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist does everybody see this can I get an amen now, let me just tie it together here so everybody can see what we're talking about today. In the book of John, chapter 1, verse 6, it says that there was a man named John sent to testify concerning the light. He said, I am not the light, but he preached so that everyone would believe in the light when he came. He also said, which we didn't read, but we'll say it here, that he also said of Jesus that Jesus was greater than him because Jesus came before him. Look at John chapter 1, uh, verse 15. This is what John testified concerning him. The one I spoke about when I said this, he's, he, this is what he said. He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So John understood the divinity of Jesus. Even though Jesus' physical birth came after his birth, John was Jesus' older cousin by birth, John understood that he had surpassed him because he, Jesus, was before him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He understood who Jesus was. Now, what we then saw is that John the Baptist came preaching and teaching about repentance in the book of Mark. He comes to prepare the way of the Lord, and then he actually baptizes Jesus, not because Jesus had sinned. And remember, John the Baptist kind of argued with him and said, hey, why should I baptize you? You should be baptizing me. But Jesus said, I do this to fulfill all righteousness. And this was to show that Jesus was going to do everything as a man, everything as a man. And then we see the picture of the Trinity, and John the Baptist's followers started following him from that point on. Then we see that this prophecy is not only in Isaiah, that I'll send my messenger before you. That's the one that Mark mentions. But there's also a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that he will send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Jesus says, Elijah did come. He says that Elijah did come in Matthew 17. And who was that Elijah that came? John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. And he said that, uh, Malachi said that he would come before that day of the Lord and he would turn the hearts of the parents to their children. And then that this would happen so that destruction would not come on the land. If Elijah doesn't come and prepare this way, he says, I will send destruction on the land. Now, let's go back to, to John. Now that we just built up a little bit about John the Baptist, and I, I know you guys are Bible college students, but let me just remind you of this. The Gospel of John is now written by John the Baptist. It's written by John the disciple, okay? But we look at John. John tells us this very important thing right here. This is the one that I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. He understood his role. He understood his role. Now go further down in the book of John and verse 19, and you're going to begin to see it all tied together. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. This is John chapter 1 verses 19 and onward. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. Now, right here, somebody may say, well, isn't there a contradiction? They asked him, are you the one, Elijah? And he said, I am not. He more than likely did not know at this point uh, that he was that final revelation in the spirit of Elijah until Jesus confirmed that he was. And you may say, well, that doesn't look well for John. It's okay. John made a mistake in this way because John had the right view of himself humbly before God. And whenever God would reveal to him who he was, he was going to believe that. 
Uh, and then even later on, when he's in jail, he actually has some doubts about Jesus. And he says, go back. He sends his followers back to Jesus. He says, make sure it's him and not another because I'm locked up in jail and I'm about ready to die. And uh, I want to make sure that this is the right Messiah because he even had some views that the Messiah would have to come and uh, would come first and conquer the land. So we see here the humanity of John, that even though John might not have known who he was all, all through and through, and Jesus actually confirms to who he is towards the end there, and then he even doubted at one point whether or not Jesus was the Messiah and sent his disciples there, he was still used by God in a great way. Just to tie that in so you don't see uh, any contradiction there. And they said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no, because... Um, in the Jewish mindset, there might have been the prophet, one like Moses coming, and then the Messiah. And they kind of thought that there might have been two different people there. Because Moses said, I'll, you know, there's going to be a prophet one day, the Lord's going to raise up among the people, one like me. And uh, there was this Jewish mindset that there would be a prophet, one like Moses, and then there would be like a Messiah that would be separate. And actually, sometimes Muslims use this against us and say, see, the Jews uh, actually thought that the prophet and Messiah were two separate people. So Jesus wasn't the fulfillment of all of the things of Moses. That was actually Muhammad. Muhammad was the prophet like Moses, and Jesus was just the Messiah. So they try to take that role away from Jesus by showing that the Jews believed in two different people. And, and actually here you're seeing three. Uh, are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. And so then this is what the Muslim would say. Elijah ends up being revealed to be John the Baptist. We know Jesus ends up being the Messiah. So who's that prophet that Moses talked about? See, they'll say that was Muhammad. But they were wrong. The Jews were wrong on a lot of things, and they were wrong to separate the prophecy of Moses from the prophecies of the Messiah, the prophecy that Moses gave, that one would come after. Does anybody, has anybody ever read that prophecy? That's in uh, Deuteronomy. It says, the Lord, this is Moses talking, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Deuteronomy 18, 15. From your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. Well, what's the first problem that you see here? If Muslims try to say that since the Jews believe that Messiah and the prophet were two separate people and that Jesus would only apply to the prophet, uh, Jesus would only apply to the, the Messiah, now this makes room for Muhammad to be the prophet. What's the first problem we see here? He's not an Israelite. Exactly. See, you cannot use this to show Muhammad at all in any way. So it doesn't help their case. But believe it or not, they do try to do that because actually Muhammad said, you will find me written in the Torah and in the Injil. So they have to stretch it to mean this is, this is our, our prophecy about him here in Deuteronomy, which that's the closest they can ever find, but it does not work for them. And then the one in the Injil is they go to the, uh, the, the paraclete. I will send one after me, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. They say that's Muhammad, the comforter, because they try to make some Arabic connection to the Greek word there and how it can be similar to mean comfort. But then we have a problem. Is, is Muhammad divine living inside of every single Muslim? Is he all present, all knowing? Because that's the role of the Holy Spirit. And then we see that the Holy Spirit only speaks what Jesus says because Jesus tells the Holy Spirit what to speak. And so does, the whole, does Muhammad only speak what Jesus says? And then you see a contradiction right there. So helping you understand a little bit beyond the surface level of the reading here. So who are you, Elijah? He probably really didn't know that's who he was, honestly. Uh, remember, he's seeing himself as the prophet coming in, in Isaiah's prophecy as the messenger. That's who he sees himself as. He doesn't see himself as Malachi's a final Elijah prophet, because that's going to separate the new and the old covenant. He doesn't see himself as that Elijah person. Finally, they said, who do you, um, finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those uh, who sent us. Who do you, what do you say about yourself? And then now this is where he says that, that, uh, that word that he knew about himself, the only thing that probably he knew at that time, which is the one from Isaiah. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent uh, to question him said, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, Elijah, nor the prophet? Do you see how they believed in three separate there? We believed in just two. Messiah and prophet are one. Elijah is another one. Two. That's it. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany. 
which is probably Jesus' favorite place to be. He spends more time in Bethany than any other place, and that's why I named my daughter that. It's such a beautiful name as well. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an amazing statement that Jesus, uh, that John the Baptist says about Jesus. He ties in the identity of Jesus to the sacrifice of what Jesus is going to do. That's why I believe when he starts to doubt, he's really doubting what he already knew, that there wasn't going to be a conquering king of the Messiah, uh, the role of the Messiah first, but the conquering of our hearts because he declares it right here, this is the Lamb of God. He doesn't say this is going to be the king that's going to defeat everybody like David. So probably when he's in jail, he, he, he gets a little doubtful and goes, why, why, why isn't this working out right? I, you know, I didn't really understand this is what would really happen is I would die and he would die, you know. But there is a revelation here that he's understanding. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who I meant when I said, a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. Do you notice how that is just so important to get here? He comes after me, but he surpasses me because he comes before me. And if we were just to put this on a, a thing right here, we have the word, which is before John being born here, but Jesus coming in the flesh comes after John, but yet he surpasses some because he's his creator. Does everybody see that? That kind of helps, too, to see it in, uh, in writing like that. He says, I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So this says that he probably knew Jesus as his cousin. Like he knew that. Like he knew, I mean, he knew Jesus, but he didn't know that was the Messiah. And that goes back to like Isaiah 53. There was nothing about Jesus' physical looks that made us drawn to him. He wasn't like the Brad Pitt. He wasn't like the Rock, some bodybuilder. You would not have thought he was the Son of God. He was as ordinary as ordinary could be. And John... Just like John didn't know he was the Elijah until Jesus told him later on, or this was after he died, but then told people he was the Elijah, he didn't even know that his cousin was the Son of God. He didn't know that until it was revealed to him on that day, the day of his baptism. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. That is key. The Holy Spirit's not just going to come on and off of Jesus like it did with the prophets, the Holy Spirit remains on him, and that then becomes uh, the normative lifestyle of the believer, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as opposed to the way it was in the Old Testament when the Holy Spirit would come on and come off. I myself um, did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, see, while he's actually baptizing right there with water, this is what God told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and can testify that this is God's chosen one. And then just the last part here. That next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said again, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So you see, he has no problem preparing these disciples and now handing them off to Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said, come, you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John, what John had said, who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was go and get his brother Simon and told him, uh, and, and, and Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and, have, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, um, but you will now be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And so now I think you guys get a good understanding of John the Baptist. Isn't this amazing? John the Baptist was the last prophet of the Old Testament. Even Jesus said about him, there's nobody greater that's been born of women, but in the kingdom of God, even the least now are greater than him. So before the covenant of the Old Testament ended, John the Baptist comes and is the epitome of the greatest prophet of all time. And he is a preacher of repentance. He is a humble man. He serves Jesus, and he rebuked sin. He ends up rebuking Herod because of his adulterous affair, is put in jail, and then he is beheaded. He was martyred for Jesus. 
And what I want you to see about John, what I believe stands out about him, is that he was a forerunner to Jesus' first coming. And now, guess what? We all get to have the same privilege that John the Baptist had, but now for Jesus' second coming. Instead of there being just one John the Baptist, there can now be a generation of John the Baptists. We now can preach the crucified Messiah, resurrected Lord, to all people and preach repentance in his name. John the Baptist preached repentance and had people baptized, but now we can preach repentance in the name of Jesus. Turn quickly with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and you'll see here what our message is the message of repentance and turn to God and be baptized. Peter replied, "Be repent and be baptized. We have the same message as John the Baptist, but the only difference is, is our baptism is directed towards Jesus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the, our Lord God will call. Now go back here and you will see this is exactly what John the Baptist's message was. Uh, going to rather uh, Matthew, going here to Matthew, uh, rather, Mar uh, excuse me, Mark, we see what John the Baptist was preaching. Right, I'm missing Mark here. Let me go here to Mark. Mark chapter 1, let me show you here. John the Baptist began, was a messenger, and what was he preaching? And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness and was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what John preached. What did Peter preach when it was his turn? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of the sin, your sins, so that you may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist came first saying, guys, let's get ready. Let's repent. Let's all turn to God right now because there's one coming after me who's the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sins of the world. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals because even though he comes after me, he surpasses me because he comes before me. And he's not just going to baptize in water. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Now I want to ask you guys a question. Do you want to be a John the Baptist of this generation? Do you want to get out of these four walls and go preach the gospel? Tell people to repent and be baptized. And remember, in the name of Jesus doesn't mean we're just going to say, be baptized in the name of Jesus. It means in the authority of Jesus. And what, what formula did he give us by his authority to baptize in? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So some of the oneness Pentecostals take this verse to mean that you have to repent to be saved. You have to be baptized in Jesus' name, you know, literally in Jesus' name, and then speak in other tongues. And that is salvation. Repentance, water baptism, and Holy Spirit baptism. That's not what this is teaching. The only thing that saves you is faith in Jesus Christ. That is clearly taught through the Bible. But those who are saved are baptized in water. And when it says in the name of Jesus, that doesn't mean in the literal formula to say in the name of Jesus. It means in the authority of Jesus. Because remember, it's, it's whose baptism are you getting? Are you getting John's baptism or Jesus' baptism? That's right. Does everybody remember that in Acts chapter 17 when I showed you that before? When we did our talk about the oneness Pentecostal thing? Uh, Acts chapter 19, rather. They look right here. Acts chapter 19, when Paul ran into some of John's followers, he said, Paul having passed, uh, this is Acts chapter 19, verse 1, and it came to pass that while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul having passed through the upper coast came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not heard uh, whether there is even a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. You see how they identify the baptism with John. Even though it was for the sake of God, but it was John's baptism, John's authority. <laughs> Excuse me. 
Then Paul said, John verily baptized with, uh, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people there should, that you should believe on the one who comes after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name or by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul had placed their hand, his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. That sounds like fun to me. Amen. And so I want to ask you guys a question. Do you want to go and preach the gospel like John the Baptist? Do you want to teach people to repent of their sins and turn to God? And as they get saved, to then be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost to build the church. And just to show you that again, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, how Jesus told us to do it. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey and observe all the things I've commanded you, and, lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. Okay, now let's talk about that. I said all that to say this. How many are ready for the message now? How do we preach repentance? How do we preach like John the Baptist? How can we do that? Well, first, we have to show men the law of God. We have to show them that they have fallen short of God's glory by breaking the law. You remember the uh, passage in Romans, Romans chapter uh, 3, verse 23, what does it say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we are in a generation today that don't even believe that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why? Because they don't believe in the law of God. Uh, Paul said in Galatians that the law is a schoolmaster. He said that the law is a schoolmaster. Let's go right here to where he said that. In Galatians, I believe, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, for all who rely upon the works of the law are under the curse. And he begins to show that you can't live by the law. You have to understand that you failed. And then he says that the role of the law is to bring us to Jesus. Now look at it right here. It says... um, let me just find it here directly. The law is a schoolmaster, because I'm trying to use different translations. The law is a schoolmaster. That is Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, just to save some time. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? This is in verse 21. God forbid. For there, if there had been a law given which could have given life, righteousness would indeed have come through the law. But the Scriptures has... Uh, but the Scripture has confined all things under sin, that the promise through faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were imprisoned under the law, kept for the faith which would later be revealed. So the law was our tutor or our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now, if you are not in faith in Jesus Christ, are you still under the tutor of the law? Yes, you are. If you are not in faith in Jesus Christ, are you under the tutor of the law? Yes. The law still applies to you. The only way a man can be justified before God is either by keeping perfectly the law or having Jesus keep the law for you. Nonetheless, the law will judge you. Either the law will judge you by your works or the law will judge Jesus and you will be uh, 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 justified by him fulfilling the law. The law is not abolished. The law is fulfilled or fulfilled in Christ or will be held accountable to you. Do you understand that? Sometimes people think, well, just because Jesus came, Just because Jesus died on the cross and and sinners don't accept it, they'll be judged by something else, even, you know, like a Christian in some way. No, no, no. The non-Christian will be judged by the law of God. The law of God remains in Jesus, but those who now are of faith have their justification because Jesus fulfilled the law. So don't look at the law as something that that is not going to be brought back up. The law will be brought back up. On the day of judgment. Now, right here, some people question what Paul meant specifically by the law because there's different uses of the law, and and I believe it's the Greek word here, nomos. Nomos, let me make sure. Uh, The Greek word for law, it is, um, let's see here, I believe it's going to be nomos or 
It's going to be like N-A-M-O-S. Go here for the Greek word once it comes up. And there's different ways that it's used by Paul. Is it referring to all 613 laws or is it referring to just the moral code, the moral law, which is contained in the Ten Commandments and in other places? And so uh, that would be something that uh, we could look into later, but uh, that is not necessarily a part of our discussion right here. Let me get the word here for, for law. This, uh, these, this is the Hebrew words. Let's go here to the Greek words. Lawless. This is what I'm looking for. Yeah, nomos. N-O-M-O-S. And you could just see right here, Matthew 5, 17. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, once again, we can ask ourselves, is that all 613 commandments, or is that simply uh, the moral law contained in the 613 commandments? Not lying, not stealing, not committing adultery, not committing homosexuality, not taking bribes, all of those things. And that's another discussion. But when we preach repentance, we must preach the law of God. We must show men the tutor of the law and show them that they get an F, that they fail. The law shows that everybody failed the test. And so what do I do? I take the moral compass of the Bible and I hold it against them. Because I know, like as I just said before, is it 613 or is it just the moral code? It doesn't matter if I start with the moral code because this moral code is a part of the 613. You'll never go wrong using the moral code of the Old Testament and New Testament as the law to show sinners that they have failed the test of salvation. Does everybody get me on that? Because I just showed you, is the 600 and, when Paul refers to the law, is it the 613 or is it just the maybe, say, 50 moral code? It doesn't matter. Whenever I use the moral code here from the Old Testament, which is also contained in the New Testament, right? They don't contradict each other. There's no moral contradiction from old to new, is there? There may be fulfillment of these things, but there's no more uh, of the rituals and of the priesthood. There may be a lot of fulfillment going on in some things that are not for the New Testament believer. But no matter what, when I start with those moral codes, the same moral code of the Old Testament is the same moral code of the New Testament, correct? So if I'm going to preach a message of repentance and using the law, which is the best place to start? With the moral code to show people that they have failed the moral code. So what do I do? I ask them, have you told a lie? And then I say, don't you lie. Have you told lie a lie? And then they say, yeah, yeah. And I ask them, well, how often do you think you lie? Well, maybe once or twice a day. And then I'll take out my calculator and I go, okay. So let's say maybe you lie once or twice a day. Let's just say two times, right? Let's say you lie two times a day. And how long have you been lying for? Like knowing what a lie is. Let's say you started lying when you were five years old. And let's say you lived to 80. So that's going to be 75 years times 365 days, that's 27,375 days, times two lies a day, you got 54,750 charges of lying against you on Judgment Day. Do you want to move now to lust? Let's go to lust. How often do you lust a day? Now, your lusting might have started around 11 years old, making it even 10 Started lusting till you're 80, that's 70 years. 70 times 365 equals 25,550 days. How often do you think you lust a day? Five times? You know, most men are going to be like, it's a lot more now. It's just lusting five times in the class I just got out of, you know, if I'm in right college, right? That's 127,750 violations of lust. Put that with lying. You're getting up to a quarter million, 250,000 violations just of two commandments. You want to go to jealousy now? Let's go to jealousy. Let's go to disobedience to parents. Let's go to taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. Let's go towards all of these other things that we know we ought not to do. And what do we see? Man is sinful. Man has fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 teaches us this simple understanding. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But guess what? The message of repentance 
It's not a bad message. The message of repentance is actually a good message. The Bible says that godly sorrow produces repentance, and this leaves no regret. How many have heard the sentence, godly sorrow? How many have heard that before? Say amen if you have, please. Look at 2 Corinthians Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Because once a man realizes or a woman realizes that they are a sinner, that they have violated the word of God, they can properly repent. And look at what it says here. Godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, guess what? After you have shown them that they are lawbreakers, guess what you can show them? The loving kindness of God that will lead them to that repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 4 quickly in closing here. Romans 2, verse 4. I'll maybe take this up next week. Preaching like John the Baptist, being a forerunner of Jesus' second coming. But it says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, tolerance, and patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? What leads us to repentance? Does the law lead us to repentance? No, the law is only a tutor and a schoolmaster that shows us we have failed the test of salvation. The law brings death. The letter kills, but the spirit brings life. So what brings us to repentance? Not the law. What brings us to repentance? The goodness of God. Let me show you Romans 2.4 in this translation. It says God's kindness. Look at also here in, uh, in the King James Version. Do you not know that it is God's goodness and his kindness is what we've already had? But I want to show you in another place. There's another uh, way of saying this, kindness and goodness. Let me get you in another version here. One more here. Let's keep going. Kindness, goodness. Let's see here. Let me get you another one. Kindness, goodness. I thought it, well, there was a version that actually said loving kindness, but maybe I'm adding that in. But it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is his goodness. So what do we do? Let's take this example quickly now in closing. We preach the gospel of repentance to people, the good news, and we show them their sin through the law of the schoolmaster, and then now we show them what Jesus did for them. So now you got a quarter million violations against you. You're standing before the judge. Now let us use the, the justice of the Bible. Every one of your violations deserves death. What did Adam and Eve get for one violation? Death. The day you eat of this, you shall surely die. One violation deserves death. You have 250,000. You have hundreds of thousands. Now imagine, you deserve death, but another one comes in your place and says, I will die for you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That he takes our place. Now do you see the kindness of God? Now this is what, wants, what, what draws people to want to repent. This is where repentance is a good thing. It's not something that's being like forced upon them or they feel like, oh, God hates me and he just wants me to do this. You know, like this religious act of repentance, like a confession to a priest. No, it's God loves me so much. He died for me. He's just waiting for me to say I'm sorry and that I believe and receive him. And so this is the problem of preaching the good news without repentance, is that you don't teach people how good God really is. So imagine you're getting on a plane, okay? You're getting on a plane, and everybody's just getting on normal like always, but you have a friend next to you and says, hey, man, put on this parachute. It will make you look good. And, and you're like, man, what, what are you talking about? I don't want to wear a parachute. I'm getting on a plane. Everything's fine. You know, and he's like, no, put on this parachute because it will make you happy. And let's say the person even tries it on. They go, okay, let me, let me try it on. And then they're sitting in that tight, that, that tight plane. They're going, this, this doesn't make me happy. It's not even comfortable. I want to take it off. And, and the person is looking around the plane. There's nobody else wearing it. 
and it just feels uncomfortable. And then you say, well, you know what? It will make your family happy. And, and, and he's like, I don't understand what you say, man. I, I don't want any of this. I'm actually pretty happy. My family's happy. No one else has this thing on. I've tried it on. It's very uncomfortable. You see, that's preaching the gospel without showing the law first. That's, how, that, that's, that's what it sounds like to sinners. Come to Jesus. He loves you. He'll make you happy. And they're like, well, I'm kind of already happy. Well, we'll try coming to my church and do this religious thing. And, and then they try it on. They say, well, it doesn't really feel comfortable. I got better things to do on Sunday. Why, why would I want to do this? But imagine now you're flying over Normandy on D-Day with the 101st Airborne. And you say to a soldier, this is the only way you're getting off of this plane. We're all jumping off. This is the only way to be saved. You have to put this on. If you don't, when you jump out, you will perish. You see, now they understand the value of that parachute. The parachute is not there to make them feel comfortable. It's not there just to make their family happy. It's not there just because they have nothing else to do. It is their only way to survive. And so now when we teach people that you're a sinner on your way to hell, you have fallen short of God's glory. You are out of the plane even right now, and the ground is rushing towards you. And then in this scenario, I'm actually coming next to you as you are falling to hand it to you. And if you don't take it, ground is coming. Hell is coming. Parish is coming. Judgment is coming. You have fallen short of the glory of God. Now if they put on the parachute, it doesn't matter if it makes them feel uncomfortable. Now it doesn't matter if people look at them and stare and say, oh, look how silly you look. Now it doesn't matter if their family's blessed or not or gets more goodies at the end of the day. At the end of the day, they look at this as their only means of salvation. That is what the gospel is when you preach it with the law, proceeding and showing the grace of God. You show men how they have fallen short. And you show Jesus how he lifts them up. You show them how they have sinned and how Jesus has come to forgive them. That was John the Baptist. That is how he prepared the way for the first coming of Jesus. You prepare the way for his second coming. Show men their sin and then show them a loving Savior that died for them. That will draw them to their knees. The kindness of God, when they realize it was the kindness of God that paid the price for me, they will see repentance and godly sorrow as a joy. They'll come up off their knees after they've wept and realize how much they violated the law of God, and they'll be thankful because they know what Jesus did for them, and they'll receive the Holy Spirit. They'll receive new life. They'll be children of God. That's what John did. Go do what he did. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this awesome chapel. I pray now that you will bless us to be uh, the gospel preachers of repentance, that, they will, that we will all do what John the Baptist did and now point people towards Jesus, just like the early disciples did, that we will not preach a gospel without repentance, that we will not preach a gospel without the law that shows men their fallen nature, but we will use the moral code, we will use the standard of God to show men how far they've fallen, but then the point to Jesus as our Savior, our loving God who came in the flesh for us to die for us so that we might be saved. May we preach like John the Baptist and prepare the way for you because you said you're not coming back until all the world has heard this message. May we shine like lights, lighting the way at the airport as it's dark, as the lights shine for the plane to come in for a landing. May we be the light of the world, lighting up the the, the unreached people groups, reaching into the high schools, into the colleges, all those who don't know you, proclaiming your name so that when you come, you may judge the world righteously and justly so that all who have heard have made their decision whether to repent or not and that we will rejoice knowing that we were your messenger. We were chosen to be a John the Baptist generation. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's give it up for Jesus. Amen. Any questions? Any questionis? Yep, go ahead.